Grace and peace to you all, and welcome to the Calvary Road with Pastor Sam Allen. Now, I do want to say there's no way you can lavish your love on Jesus and, and pour out that which is most precious to you on him and have it be a waste. So it, it's just a, a horrible contrast between what she's actually doing and, and well, Judas's response to it. Today we start a new study that Pastor Sam has entitled The Lord's Supper. And The Lord's Supper is exactly what we're going to be looking at, including some of the events that surrounded it. We're looking at the first 31 verses of Mark chapter 14, so let's get started. We read here in Mark 14, after two days it was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the chief priests and the scribes sought how they might take him by trickery and put him to death. But they said, not during the feast, lest there be an uproar of the people. This particular feast was the most important to the Jewish community, the people of God, to Israel, as it celebrated and commemorated their deliverance, their ancestors' deliverance from Egypt under the tyranny of Pharaoh. And of course, he brought him out with a mighty hand. A lamb was to be slain. Blood was to be applied to the doorpost and the lintels of the house. This is the 10th of uh, 10 plagues that he sent upon Pharaoh, who just basically said, I'm not letting the people go. I don't know who this Lord of yours is, and I will not let those people go. Well, he did let the people go, and, and this is the celebration, this Passover that they were celebrating, that looked back to that event. Now, Jesus changes it forever because he is the fulfillment of it. His blood would soon be shed. He would die on Calvary's cross for our sins and theirs. And in the midst of all of that, whenever they got together for Passover, at least those who came to know him, it would no longer be about what God once had done way back then for our ancestors, but now what God has done for all men in Christ Jesus. So the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread, both mentioned. Feast of Unleavened Bread lasted seven days. It just reminded them that they had to leave Egypt in haste. There wasn't time to add yeast. That's all leaven is to their dough. So, so they left in haste. And, and this was a week-long celebration where they were able to teach their children. And that was the primary purpose of it beyond just remembering what God had done. It was teaching the next generation what God had done for the people of God. Well, there's a problem here. As they're preparing to celebrate, the chief priests and the scribes are seeking to arrest him and to put him to death. But they have a problem. They're in a bit of a pickle. If they wait till after the feast, it's possible he could leave and they wouldn't catch up with him. If they arrest him during the feast... Well, that could cause an uproar among the people, something they wanted to avoid at all cost. So they make their decision, okay, we're going to arrest him. We're going to make sure he's crucified. But they say not during the feast, lest there be any uproar of the people. As if they had any control over the situation. They could decide what they wanted to do. 
They could decide that they wanted to see him put to death, but he was operating on the father's timetable. His hour hadn't come, his hour hadn't come, his hour hadn't come. Read through John's gospel. You'll find that phrase again and again. And then all of a sudden he says, the hour has come for the son of man to be glorified. They have their plot. They have their plan. But Jesus is operating on the father's plan and on his timetable. Being in Bethany, we read verse three, at the house of Simon the leper, as he sat at the table, a woman came in having an alabaster flask of costly oil, very costly oil of spikenard. And she broke the flask and poured it on his head. But there were some who were indignant among themselves and said, why was this fragrant oil wasted? For it might have been sold for more than 300 denarii and given to the poor. And they criticized her sharply. Now, there are a couple things that are here and a couple things that aren't here. I believe both related to the fact that Mark was the first to write a gospel. Matthew wrote soon after, Luke sometime beyond that. John writes latest. And we're going to read a couple things from John here in a moment or I'll read them to you. They're in a place they often spent time when they were coming to Jerusalem, Bethany, but they're not in the house of Mary and Martha and Lazarus, his dear friends. They're actually in the house of Simon the leper. Now, Mark doesn't tell us that it's Mary who anoints Jesus. John does that. Mark doesn't tell us that Lazarus was there or Martha was there. Nor does Mark tell us that Judas is actually the one that started saying, why was this fragrant oil wasted? Now, I do want to say there's no way you can lavish your love on Jesus and, and pour out that which is most precious to you on him and have it be a waste. So it, it's just a a horrible contrast between what she's actually doing and, and well, Judas's response to it. And I'll read you that in a moment. Well, here's what I'm thinking, because Mark writes early. He doesn't name names. Why? Well, it could be dangerous for Martha or Mary. They were going to be arresting people and persecuting people. Uh, Lazarus was already on a hit list at this point. And I don't mean he had a new you know, record out. He, he was on a hit list where the, the religious leaders had decided they had to put him to death because you can't have a guy who used to be dead sitting around because his very presence is a witness of Jesus' power to give life, not just physically, but spiritually as he'd often apply it. Well, Anyway, John names names. Why? He writes much later and he's not worried about what they might do. So he tells us Mary was there. She's the one anointing him. Martha was there. She was serving as always. Lazarus was there sitting with his dear friend, Jesus, witnessing by his very presence. And Judas was there as well. Well, it was six days that we get the report from John. It's in John 12. You can go there or not. I'm just going to give you the, the highlights and the lowlights because there are both. It was six days before the Passover when he first came to Bethany. It's where Lazarus, who had been dead, John says, whom he'd raised from the dead. And I like that. It always mentions that he'd been dead. And it mentions that Jesus raised him from the dead. I would love it if that were 
people's testimony of us. Yeah, I knew that guy when he was dead. I knew that guy when he was blind. I knew that guy when he was deaf. I knew that guy when he was in darkness. But man, he's alive and he can see and he can hear and he's walking in the light. That's what they're able to say about Lazarus. And it's what we want them to say about us. He was one who sat at the table with them. Mary took a pound of very costly oil of spikenard, anointed the feet of Jesus, wiped his feet with their hair. The house was filled with the fragrance of the oil. Now, this is important. Martha's there and she's serving, but it's not her house. She's serving because Martha's a servant. Earlier in her life and in her experience with Jesus, she was a complaining servant. Some of you will be able to relate to this. You love the Lord, you serve the Lord, but you find yourself complaining because it's easy to get your eyes off him and start looking at them, them being all those who aren't helping you do whatever it is God's called you to do. Can I suggest that God calls each of us to what he wants us to do and he empowers us to do that? And whenever I get out of my lane and try to help people do something I don't know how to do, it's harder on them and harder on me. So if you don't have everyone joining in and saying, hey, what can I do to help you? Maybe that's God's mercy because <laughs> not everyone who wants to help is a help. Well, anyway, uh, what happens is, is she's here earlier, an earlier um, record of one of their encounters at their own house in that one. She was serving and Mary was doing what she always did, sitting at the feet of Jesus, listening to him, looking in his eyes, processing what he was saying, loving on him. So Martha's where she always is, but now she's not complaining. And if you're aware of the story, you know she was hotter than the pots and pans because Mary would not help out. And Jesus said, Martha, you're swerved and distracted about so many things. But Mary has chosen the better part. I will not take it away from her. So if the question in your mind is, well, then is it better to sit than to serve? No, it's better to sit first, though, and get marching orders from the Lord than to serve and to make sure you're serving in his power and under his direction, because he's not just asking us to do something, he's asking us to do his thing, what he's fashioned and formed and created and empowering us to do. So Martha's serving, Mary is lavishing her love upon him. This sacrifice she makes, it's worth a year's wages. There's no suggestion in scripture that these are wealthy people. They're just loving people. So they always host Jesus and his disciples. They always do what they can for him. And in this case, it says she wipes his feet after pouring the oil on his head and on his feet with her hair. That means everywhere she goes after this, that fragrance of her lavish gift is going to go with her. They're going to say, man, she smells just like Jesus. And the whole house we read was filled with the fragrance of that sacrifice. So the house smelled just like Jesus. How great would it be if people came over and they're like, man, something smells and it's not the dogs or it's not the broccoli you cooked last night. Something smells different here. And it's just that sweet fragrance of love and adoration toward our Lord flowing to and through each of us toward them. 
So Martha serves with no complaints. Lazarus witnesses by his very presence. Mary sacrifices, filling the house with the fragrance of her valuable, selfless gift. Seriously radical contrast follows one of his disciples, and this is still John 12. I want you to know where it is. I didn't have everyone turn there because we'll be back here in just a moment, back here being Mark 14. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, and being a father and a grandfather, I just want to say I feel bad for Simon. Simon's son who would betray him said, why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And this he said, not that he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. If you've ever seen those specials on the missing years of Jesus or the disciples of Jesus and they paint Judas as some kind of a, a victim in this whole thing. He just got duped. He just got confused. Not at all. He had a covetous heart. He stole from the money that was given to support the disciples. And not only that, he goes and bargains, striking a bargain with the religious leaders to sell out his Lord, to betray his Lord. Remember I, I mentioned in the introduction they were in a pickle. That problem, well, if we wait till he, the feast is over, he could be gone. If we do it now, it could cause an uproar. Judas takes care of that for them by coming to them. They didn't have to seek him out. They just said, well, this has to be, this. they probably said, whoa, this is the Lord. But they couldn't have been more wrong. Well, Anyway, Judas is the one who starts the complaining. And it seems he's not just one of the guys. I never thought of Judas as a leader, but if somebody says something really stupid and they're not a leader, usually people look at him and say, that's really stupid. But if they're a leader, people are a little, well, <laughs> they're reluctant to do so. And so what they do is they join him in criticizing her. Here she's doing something so profoundly beautiful and, and, and memorable. Jesus says, wherever this gospel is preached, what she has done will be spoken in all the world. It's a powerful thing. And, and so he complains and they join in. And I just want to say, if God's made you a leader, be very careful. Because if you criticize others, well, it can poison the well. It can taint the work. It can spread like wildfire. Why? The enemy whispers in our ears. You see that? You see what they're doing? Or do you see how they, they didn't, they, they weren't even thinking of you. He sows division among us. He magnifies offenses, dividing and distracting us from the call on our life to love God and love people. So, in the, in the end of all of this, in the end of all of that, well, we go back to Mark 14, 6, which just happens to be word for word the same thing John says in chapter 12, verse 6. But we're back here for our uh, study's sake. Jesus said, let her alone. Why do you trouble her? She has done a good work for me. For you have the poor with you always, whenever you wish you may do them good. But me you do not have always. She has done what she could. She's come beforehand to anoint my body for burial. I love that. Did she actually 
realized that when he was speaking of the cross and he was speaking of the tomb and he was speaking of the resurrection, he meant it all literally. They were still struggling to process that information. We know this because even at the Last Supper, they argued among themselves. And Gail Irwin did a masterful job sharing the, the history and, the, and the, the setting of the Last Supper, the Lord's Supper. And, and if you didn't catch him when he was here, log on to the site, ccchico.com. That it'll be listed there in our recent studies. Make sure you watch it. Don't just listen to it because Gail is very expressive. And once you see him speak, if you haven't, then get his book, The Jesus Style. They're free, by the way, if I didn't mention that out there. As soon as we give all these away, we're going to buy some cases because I'm pretty sure all of you who received a free copy are going to be able to think of someone you'd like to give a copy too. So we'll make that possible. I'm also thinking uh, that the group that's going with us to Israel, just this kind of just came to me last night. I was talking to one of the brothers that's going to be on the trip. We're going to request seats not by each other and I'll bring a book, the Jesus style, and just set it down next to us so the person sitting by us notices it and just wait for him to ask what that is and then let God do his thing. We could have, I mean, it's a 14 hour flight. I'm pretty sure you could read the whole book to somebody in 14 hours and they got no way to get away. So anyway, be in prayer because I, it sounds like I'm kidding, but I'm absolutely serious about this, uh, this possibility. Well, anyway, they know the story. He, he says what she's done, wherever this gospel is preached and note in verse nine, in the whole world. What this woman has done will also be told as a memorial to her. So, so they're, they're at the table, they're leaning there, they're, they're, they're sharing in the Last Supper. And, and as they do, well, our story continues. I do want to say that, that Jesus' rebuke must have pierced most of their hearts. They're still struggling. We'll see Peter still in, under the delusion that he is unlike any other, above all others. And, and that, that delusion is about to be shattered. But, but I know that what he's saying has to pierce their hearts because they're criticizing someone he just lavished incredible and beautiful praise upon. But the same sun that melts the butter hardens the clay. You know that. And Judas's heart was definitely hardened in this moment. He criticizes her. Jesus rebukes him and those who joined in, lavishing his praise upon her. Judas leaves to go betray our Lord. Judas Iscariot, verse 10, one of the 12 went to the chief priest to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. So he sought how he might conveniently betray him. They plotted, they planned, and he decided to partner with them. But Jesus' mission, again, was in the hands of the Father. He was doing, as he said he did, always all things to please the Father. It was the first day of unleavened bread. That's the Passover. When they killed the Passover lamb, verse 12, his disciples said to him, where do you want to go? Us to go and prepare that you may eat the Passover. 
he sent two of the disciples and said to them, go into the city, a man will meet you carrying a pitcher of water, follow him. Wherever he goes in, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is the room in which I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room furnished and prepared there make ready for us. So his disciples went out and came into the city and found it just as he said to them, and they prepared the Passover. In the evening, he came with the 12, and as they sat and ate, Jesus said, Assuredly, I say to you, one of you who eats with me will betray me. Many of you are so familiar with these passages, as familiar as I am. Some of you, though, it's all brand new. And I want to say to both, tune in. Pay close attention to what we're looking at and reading. Because he says, one of you who eats with me will betray me. He's talking to a group of men he had chosen and discipled for over three years. He demonstrated his love to them. They'd watched and heard him love on others and show mercy to others. They'd been empowered by him and sent out to preach and heal and, and cast out demons. And, and I want to suggest that if Judas wasn't empowered by Jesus, they would have known something was wrong. They'd be like, hey, something's wrong with this guy, Lord. We go out there and nothing he says is right or nothing he does works. This is so sobering and should be, and, and communion, what a great day for this. How good is God's timing? How, how often have I found myself, and believe me, I don't plan these things out six months in advance, and if I did, too many things would go wrong to make it possible, but we're, we're looking at the Lord's Supper on the day we're going to share communion. That cannot be a coincidence. Well, in any case, um, that, that he says, one of you, one of you 12 will betray me. They began to be sorrowful and say to him one by one. And listen, you'd expect them to say, well, is it him? Ah, it's got to be him. Man, that, that guy, he's always looked shady to me, Lord. No, no. They're like, is it I? Could it be me? Could I possibly do such a thing? And that's the right question, you see. We need to ask. Lord, am I capable of denying you, betraying you? Because Judas was, and I'm not saying, you know, you are or I am. I'm just saying, rather than look around and wonder, we should just, if there's ever a time to be introspective, it's when we're looking at such sobering details. Another said, is it I? He answered and said, it is one of the 12 who dips with me in the dish. Gail explained to us in his message uh, a couple weeks back how this one had to be Judas. We know from other gospel accounts it was Judas, but that's not even the point. He says it's one who's dipping with me in the dish, eating with another, breaking bread together. It was a sign of friendship and intimacy. And in their minds, the bread that was nourishing you is nourishing me. So we are becoming one with one another and breaking bread together. That's why Jews wouldn't eat with Gentiles. They wouldn't even go into a Gentile house. Not most of them. Jesus had no problems with that. He was never defiled by the things or the people around him. He was bringing holiness and purity and glory to them. 
In any case, he says, the son of man goes just as it is written of him, but woe to that man whom the son of man, by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been good for that man if he had never been born. I think about Judas's indignation when Mary poured the costly oil on Jesus. Well, let's lend a little perspective to that. In Hosea 2.8, God describes how his unfaithful people would offer sacrifices to Baal. And it says that they didn't know that the sacrifices they were offering to this false god had been given to them by God in the first place. What a picture. I wonder if Judas realized that the very oil that he thought was so valuable had been given to them by God. Anytime we give, we're giving back something that didn't belong to us in the first place. The Calvary Road is a ministry of Calvary Chapel Chico, and you can visit our website, ccchico.com, or download the CC Chico app to contact us and listen to other studies from Pastor Sam. You can also listen to The Calvary Road as a daily podcast by visiting thecalvaryroad.com. We'd love to hear from you. And until next time, may you find grace and peace as your journey takes you down the Calvary Road. And your grace.